You're listening to It Simply Isn't Done, a podcast of Portage Chapel Hill. I'm Barry Petrucci. I'm Jess Davenport. And together we are the Irreverent Reverends. It Simply Isn't Done is a podcast both about the state of the church, um, because the church is not done and God is still working with us, and about some of the things we do around here, which we frequently hear are things that are simply not done. Correct. And we're glad you're here with us for the ride. Well, Barry, you're back. I am back. You are back. Are you renewed? Renewed, retread, ready to go. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, it is good to have you back and back on the pod. It is good. Yeah. To have this mic right in front of my face, it's it feels like old times. It is good and a joyful thing. <laughs> Always and everywhere. Always and everywhere. <laughs> wow. Well, this week we started a new sermon series around here called I've Been Meaning to Ask. The focus on this series is really to take us a little bit deeper into relationship. I preach this week. Barry's got next. But this week we... Looked at the question, where are you from? I've been meaning to ask, where are you from? And so our we had two scriptures. Barry, you read them. What were they? I did. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. Test me now. I don't have my notes in front of me. Uh, uh, one, of, one of them was John 1. John 1, 35 Which was the call, the call of, of, the, of the apostles. Um, and the other one was, um, what was it? <laughs> Genesis 2. Yes, creation. 4B The second creation story. Yes, the second creation story. Yeah. Yeah, sorry to put you on the spot. I've been back for literally hours and I'm already quizzing you. And it's it's been a whole 24 hours since I read the scripture, so, (laughs) you know, can't expect everything. We'll check out in the show notes if you've already heard the scriptures and the message, and we'll meet you back for some reflection. We have a couple of scriptures this morning, one from Genesis, the second chapter, verses 4 to 15, and the other one from the Gospel of John, verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 35 to 51, first Genesis. Now, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth and no vegetation of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground, but a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed Out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flows out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divides and becomes four branches. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And from John chapter 1. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, what are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And Jesus said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. 
he first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him about whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, of, Jesus son of, try it again, Jesus, son of Joseph from, Joseph from Nazareth. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come from Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, he said of him, here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael asked him, where did you get to know me? And Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Nathanael answered, Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered, do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. A word of God that is still speaking. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. Pray with me. Gracious and holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this week we are kicking off a new sermon series called I've Been Meaning to Ask. And each week we'll have a guiding question. This week's is Where Are You From? This is a series kind of organized um, by Sanctified Art. And it was designed during the pandemic when a lot of our social fabric had entirely collapsed. Now, I never know what to say about the time we're in now because we're not really post-pandemic, but it's not like it was. Wherever we are now, I think it still speaks to us as we're trying to figure out how to weave that fabric together, maybe back the way it was or maybe in a new way entirely. And we've been through a lot. We've been through a pandemic. There are land wars. Right? We've seen our own political system um, not behave the ways we might have anticipated. Our economy has been at times tough for many of us. And this has made our relationships with people strained. And not just folks we've known forever, but people we are just getting to know. I've seen this most prominently with our youth. So I lead youth group and confirmation, and our youth are incredible. They're wonderful, I love spending time with them. Um, and for two years, during very formative times, they were explicitly or implicitly taught that being too close to people was not safe. And so there are times when we're together downstairs, I'll walk down for confirmation, and they will be in the dark, sitting quietly, maybe on their phones, maybe not, just waiting for someone to say something and thinking through how do we communicate. And then on the opposite end, sometimes they will all be talking and expressing what they have to say at the exact same time. And friends, I see that pattern, not just with youth, but with a lot of us, of figuring out how to be in relationship with one another, because we all were taught it wasn't safe to be close to anyone. Aside from who you live with, some of us live by ourselves. And that was true. I don't really take issue with that at all, um, but I want to name that reality because it's made building relationships harder. We had to sacrifice relationship the way at least we knew how to do it for safety. I'm grateful we did. I'm grateful we're here. I mourn those we've lost. And the effects on our psyche are real. And one of the primary ways I understand church is through relationship. Jesus spent the majority of his time preaching about being in right relationships, which means we need to have relationships to start with. 
The pastor that organized this series shared a story that inspired her to kind of organize it. She was gardening during the pandemic, and her neighbor, with whom she was friendly but kind of distant, was outside. They were both in the shadows of their opposing political yard signs. And one day, he leaned over the hedge and said, hey, do you have any family around here? And they shared this conversation about where they are from. And for her, it meant that her neighbor was no longer Jim with the Biden sign, right, or Jim with the Trump sign, but Jim, who grew up in Albuquerque and has brothers in town and a sister that he lost. You all kind of get the picture. His curiosity sparked more depth and understanding in their relationship. It made each of them more human to one another and less ideological figures. One person's genuine curiosity made them both be more human to each other. All of that from a form of the question, where are you from? We have two scripture stories today that point us in that direction, towards mutuality and curiosity of the other. We have the story of God creating humanity. So this creation story, it's the second one we have in Genesis, right? So the first one is the seven days, and it's beautiful, and it's poetic. We all know that one. And then we get into the second story, and it's not as clearly poetry, but there's still a poetic nature about it. It's narrative, it's prose. What I love about it is it's so tactile. It's so visceral. We can see this anthropomorphic God shaping and forming Adam, all coming together in the dirt, and then finally breathing life through nostrils, creating. I feel like it reads almost like God was painting. And I kind of got this silly image of God as uh, Bob Ross. <laughs> right? Some of it says, the Lord God made all kinds of trees that grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. That's happy little trees, friends. <laughs> and I think that's a really beautiful like, image for us. Um, Dr. Raj Nadella offers, much of this story is about mutuality, symbiosis, and interdependence. Adam was formed from the ground and in turn asked to till it and in turn is sustained by it. He serves the land. We understand there's a symbiotic relationship between parts of God's creation. God is in the middle of this story, breathing the breath of life, but also promoting mutual life-giving relationships between different parts of creation from the very beginning, promoting mutual life and giving relationships between different parts of creation. How do you breathe life into others? How do others breathe life into you? From the story, we can understand a bit about what God wants for us and how we were created to be made in God's image means breathing life into others and letting others breathe life into us. In order to even get there, we have to start from a place of curiosity. In our second story, curiosity is rampant. And isn't that rare nowadays? I love this story because it paints kind of a funny picture. We start with John the Baptist, who I guess just saw Jesus and just yelled, just yelled, look, there's the Lamb of God! And two would-be disciples overheard him and then decided not to introduce themselves, but to go do their own recon mission. (laughs) They were like sneaking, like Pink Panther, like, oh. And finally Jesus notices and is like, hey, what are y'all looking for? And they say, you, you, where are you staying? And he says, come and see. And the Greek here is more like, Come and know. Come and understand. Right? Come and experience. It's not just vision. Right? It's a knowing. And they do. And then in the next part of the story, we read, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, hey, 
We have found the one who Moses and the law wrote about, the prophets wrote about, Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip invites him into curiosity and says, come and see. I love this interaction. Come and see. Philip wasn't defensive, just offering curiosity. And I think that's helpful for us because even Jesus' first disciples made assumptions about him, didn't really have the full picture, didn't really know what was going on. It's really human, really human. What got folks to even hear him was responding to the invitation of curiosity, responding to the come and see. In the last bit of our story, we learned that that curiosity was mutual from God to human. Right? Jesus had already learned about Nathaniel. And apparently Nathaniel really liked to hear strangers compliment him, right? <laughs> Truly, you are a man from Israel without any deceit. And he's like, yeah, you got me. How'd you know? I love that. It's really fun and shows a little bit about their personality. But there's this mutual curiosity between God and human all woven throughout this story. What are you curious about right now? What inspires or draws your curiosity? We tend to frown upon curiosity. We view it as frivolous, right? It killed the cat. Stay in your lane, keep your head down. But if we are never curious, how do we grow? How can we be challenged? We've been talking about some hard things lately around here, and the world has been talking about and experiencing hard things for the past few years. And I've noticed we've kind of collectively decided people all must have fixed views. They're not allowed to change. If someone has one view at one time, that's the view forever, right? And then we assume those views are the dominant feature about them. So oftentimes when we ask questions, we aren't really asking questions. Right? We're waiting for our confirmation bias right, to kick in and to be confirmed in our assumption. Or we're waiting to just respond and say the thing we wanted to say to begin with without even listening to anyone. And then I think, right, we, we were born really curious. Many of us have been around young ones that are very, very curious, really curious about the world around them. And then sometime in our lives, we have experiences that kind of shut us down from that and make us think, ooh, no thank you. <laughs> All right? My curiosity didn't help me in that instance. And we just answer our own questions with assumptions. All right, we can see that with our own question today, like where are you from? Some of us have been asked that in a variety of different ways. Right? Some with assumption and accusation, some with curiosity. Hey, are you from Nazareth? But Jesus really inspires us to curiosity. He asks so many questions throughout Scripture. In the Gospels, Jesus asks 307 questions. He is asked 187. You know where I'm going with this. He only directly answers three <laughs> Right? He often speaks in parables, which inspire curiosity, right? He gives it back and says, hey, you think about this. You think about this. That inspires our curiosity, frankly, if not befuddlement. <laughs> Last month, I started reading Yasha Monk's The Identity Trap. Monk is a political scientist. He offers a critique of the politically progressive left. That's really interesting. And I think part of it can apply in progressive theological spaces and speak generally to our current divisiveness. Kind of in light of our last series, I engaged with this realizing that ideas don't threaten us. Um, I'm not like a disciple of his. I don't necessarily endorse all his work. I, I agreed and disagreed with a lot of it. But I commend it to you if you're like me and have tons of free time to read political philosophy. <laughs> It, is, it did make me think, right, a lot. He's a liberal in a classical sense offering this critique, but what I took from his work is an application of what a lot of social and political philosophers have been saying. We tend to overcorrect in society. We have this pattern of overcorrecting generation to generation. Yes. 
We talked about this a few weeks ago with the issue of sexuality, where there's this perception of free love in one generation. So the next generation, it's absolute purity culture. We see this with parenting, where there's a perception of being latchkey kids and latchkey parenting, and we overcorrect to helicopter parenting. Right now, that's an oversimplification. All of us have our own individual styles, but you all understand where this pendulum swinging goes back and forth. Monk's work made me think about how that overcorrection is happening now, but both sides of the pendulum are swinging at the same time, and we feel a little off of our calibration. One camp of folks say there's a right way to be and exist. There is one preferred identity of an American, and we'll prevent you from asserting anything else. Right? We'll challenge books, we'll alter curriculums, we'll legislate what you can do as a parent regarding the health of your kid which is essentially saying your identity is not valid. You shouldn't have the access to the same rights and rhythms of society because of that. Ideologically, on the other side, is this idea that aspects of who we are are so unique, no one else could ever understand us. No one else could possibly. If someone doesn't share this one fundamental belief, there must be nothing else we have in common. I must avoid any and all meaningful connection with another person. In politically progressive spaces, and frankly often theological, there's this weird like oppression Olympics of who is actually allowed to speak on a topic, whose identity is actually valid within this hierarchy of who can be present and ask questions, right? Kind of the worst effects of cancel culture. Now, I'm not saying that both are equal in terms of danger or destruction, but rather they're diametrically opposed, but really talking about the same issue. And they're often the loudest voices and they're the ones we hear parroted and memed most frequently. And they have something in common that Monk lifts to the top. He writes, humans throughout history have defined themselves in all kinds of different ways, but then once you've defined yourself as part of the same group, and you think those people over there are part of another group, you're going to sometimes be capable of great courage and altruism towards members of your group but you're going to sometimes treat with disregard or commit horrific violence against members of another group. We're here on a Sunday morning seeing that play out the week before us today. We see that on small local scales. We're seeing that in wars taking place across oceans. So often Jesus offers, cajoles, invites us into a different way, right? We call it a third way. And that's, it's not the middle of the pendulum, friends. It's an entirely different mechanic. It is something entirely different, where right relationship drives how we show up. It is a way of being. And curiosity is our starting place and our entry point. It invites us into relationship, and relationship is what transforms us through God and through one another. Come and see. Where are you from? Where's home for you? I want to close today with a story and an invitation. When I served a Methodist church in Washington, D.C., the church had a recent history of opening doors for inaugurations because they're in January and it is cold. <laughs> and so many people are flooding in and they need restrooms and places to charge their phones and waters and just, you know, just a general hub opening up doors for that. They have done that since 2008. They continue to do it today. But the folks who got there to open the doors were thinking, huh, it's interesting that we open doors for strangers we are welcoming, but not from the men who are our neighbors that sleep on our grate right outside. Not that one needs to be exclusive of the other, but why not both? And this ministry called Our Daily Bread was born in 2008. Today it's a six-day-a-week food ministry, and there are social workers, and there's a Dress for Success office, and the city has four housing agencies, and one of them is within that church. And it was within this ministry that my senior pastor and the deacons taught me, I think, this incredible baseline for churches like ours that are theologically progressive. It's that all people are welcome, but not all behaviors are welcome. All people, all people, not all behaviors. We had to use that in that space 
because some of the behaviors we were talking about, like yelling or getting into fights, <laughs> it would get rowdy in the Our Daily Bread space for a whole host of reasons. You cannot throw your cup. That's a behavior that is unwelcome. But I've tried to adopt that and apply it to more, more broad spaces because I think that it's Christ-like. If you and I have a different view, I can fully accept and welcome you. No, I'm not going to be yelled and screamed at to my face. Right? That's a behavior I think is unacceptable. Right? But it's a baseline for understanding how to be with one another. And so I had this really interesting, after they kind of taught me this and onboarded me, I was kind of like the bouncer at the door. Right? The kitchen was downstairs, and I'd have to go upstairs, and I'd be welcoming folks in. Um, and particularly our unhoused neighbors, would, we would have these consistent issues where obviously they didn't want their stuff stolen, but most specifically, they didn't want their weapons stolen. They didn't want their weapons stolen. Um, and I do not know what it's like to live on the streets and have a, have a weapon near me because someone might jump me in the night. I don't know what that's like. Right? I know I don't. And so the kind of approach we took as a church was, we don't know what that's about. Uh, we cannot guilt or shame that because we we're not from that experience. But we don't love that there are like bats with nails on them just hanging out in the churchyard. So what can we do? And we created a little rack. So you'd walk in and there was like a rack for you to put those things down. And we created this culture of, hey, we, we know and hear what you're telling us. It's like outside, but we want to create a space in the church where you can lay your weapons down. Lay your weapons down. So you can come in, you can eat, you can meet with a social worker if you want. You can just talk, get a cup of coffee, be in this space, participate in Bible study if you'd like. But most importantly, you can let your guard down. You can let your weapons down. And I've thought about that a lot for church in a metaphorical sense, not just a literal. How can we be a place where we can let our guard down and let our weapons down? And sometimes folks, like I said, had behaviors that weren't welcome, and we'd have to kind of give them a break or work on some mediation and have conversations outside of that space about what reentry might look like. But almost always, this approach of just, hey, come and see what this is about, created a really powerful environment where people wanted to maintain it. They wanted to be a part of it. And it was interesting because it created a space of actual belonging. It was not easy. It was not an easy place to be often. As you might understand, poverty and homelessness, they don't just target folks of one particular ideology. So we had a lot of fascinating conversations, especially in DC during election cycles. It was wide ranging. There were unique challenges. But this kind of, hey, can we be in a space where you belong? I want to know more about who you are. You don't have to bring your weapons here. Really, really helped me understand what the body of Christ is about. This week, my invitation to us is twofold. I want you to consider where do you feel your heart has hardened, if at all, right? Into whom? In what circumstances are you feeling that? I want you to notice that and think it, what would it be like to be curious in those situations? instead of having your weapons and your guard up immediately. The second part is I want you to consider the question, where are you from, right? Not what's your hometown, not where do you live right now. Where have you felt the greatest sense of belonging? Where is home for you? Can you recreate that space for others? Do you know what that's like for you as an individual? I'm really excited for this series and the ways it will shape, inform us into building relationships with one another, right? Coming out of a time where we knew that that was scary and we couldn't exactly do that and we had to live stream church and we saw that no one was here. I'm also excited to get to know more about where you're from, where's home for you and to share in these kinds of mutual exchanges. Amen. All right, what you got, Barry? Well, where are you from? When somebody asks, asks you that question, what do you, what do you say? I still...
talk about home uh, being kind of where I grew up. And we've talked about that a little bit. I remember asking you, like, hey, when did, uh, when, if, did, did Michigan kind of start to feel like home? Because when I talk about home, I still think of grain fields in the middle of Illinois. Um, and that kind of feels like home. And sometimes, really, if, I, if I'm lucky, I like to pilgrimage quarterly <laughs> back home uh, because there's, I don't know, it just feels so familiar and comforting. And I feel very much like I belong and I like, uh, you know, I like being able to see for miles and miles and miles. I like to be able to see the moon and the stars. Uh, my family, my, my folks and my sister are there. So that's what I say. They, they're kind of that place and them um, home for me. Which is interesting because I've lived in Michigan for a while. I've lived in D.C. Um, but that still feels like home. And yeah. I anticipate that will shift over time. Yeah, uh, it's a heart thing. You know, geography is an interesting thing. I, I moved at really formative times in my life, and it made it hard to um, get a sense of home as geography. Will you repeat that um, sentence just so I can get rid of that? Sorry. Yeah, so you can get rid of the sentence. The ping. So we had a little ping, so we're going to get rid of that. Um, I was saying that for me it was a little bit difficult uh, because I moved at formative times in my life, and, and it's hard for me to really get a sense of home as geography, um, a sense that home is where the heart is. It's moved around quite a bit. So I was born in Stamford, Connecticut, moved at four years old to New York City, uh, and then moved again at 13 um, from New York City to Ludington, Michigan, which was all kinds of... of culture shift right at the time where all kinds of other things were happening in my young life um, and uh, personal identity. So I didn't really have a sense. And, and my, my father moved back in two years. My mother stayed until I graduated high school. Um, and then um, by then I had a sense that, that Michigan was where it was at, but I wasn't anticipating staying, frankly. Uh, and I did. So all of that is to say that it's, it's I, I don't feel totally tied to the geography, um, but a sense of connection because of the people that have been around, including those that I'm related to, but not as much. Yeah, I, I was thinking about that because it's interesting. And I, I'm wondering how much of growing up in a small town that was mostly focused on agriculture and so much of the community was really tied to the land that that became kind of a sense of my identity as well. Um, yeah, it's interesting to think about. Like when you have community harvest festivals and a lot of the things you do that kind of build community are specifically tied to land. It's an interesting thing to think about what, what home might be. Hmm. Yeah, that, and that was a weird shift for me because I moved from, from New York where there's not that sense of of community tied to the land. Let's um, drive it, your tractor to school days in New York City. We, we do not. We do not. But but we do have cultural oh, festivals yeah, sure. where people gather. Uh, but then I moved to Ludington and associated with with Lisa early on, who was a farmer uh, and intimately tied to tied to the land of apple trees and and cherry trees. Um, and so I I came to appreciate that but really not own it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so it was interesting in, in your texts um, to pull up this, this idea of where people are from. Uh, the gospel text is, is interesting because there's this kind of playfulness around, around the devaluing of, of some places where people might be from, uh, including Jesus, who's from Nazareth. And can anything good come from Nazareth, which I love. Mm -hmm. uh, podunk town what were you hoping to pull from that from those scriptures yeah I think that the two things that I wanted to bring to the surface um, were this kind of juxtaposition where God made humanity from the land right and we have this kind of identity this God breathed identity all, all humans kind of have and share that so there's this very broad sense of where we are from, God's own breath, and then the particularities of context, both of 
uh, Jesus being from a particular place that some did not view highly or maybe even never heard of, you know, or minimally heard of, and then the curiosity that followed that. Well, that doesn't have to totally define that person. It's an interesting and it'll be part of them, but come and see. Come and see more because all of us are, are not simply where we are from. Formed by, perhaps, one way or another, but not, that's not the essence of who we are. It is interesting as as we read the text and um, uh, and you preached. I was thinking about how Jesus said, "Come and see," and um, we often think about it as, "Let me show you," and that's very different. Yeah, that's very different. Um, so the "come and see" really puts puts it puts the onus on us mm-hmm. uh, to to make the move to continue. As the text has, they're they're, they're kind of creep. There, these are uh, apostles of John the Baptist who now are creeping on Jesus, mm-hmm. and Jesus says, "Come and see." Yeah, and the the Greek being not just like come and look at, not no. even being come and witness, come and know. Yeah, there's you know. a sense of embracing. Yeah, come and understand. Come and fully perceive. Um, yeah, so I, I appreciated that too of like you, you know, you have the agency to come and participate fully and I, I'm inviting you to do so. I, th- I think it's that's really helpful for us pastorally because so often people come to us with frustration about their spiritual lives and mm-hmm. what's not working for them and, and what can we show them and um, point them to this text or that text or what we're reading and so often all we can do is point back to mm-hmm. um, a step that they can take. And, and very frequently they do not because <laughs> that's more work. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I appreciate this text in, in helping to kind of clarify what our roles are um, because there are folks that come from traditions where pastors have kind of like ultimate authority and kind of hold that both in regards to what other people's behaviors are, what they're engaging in. That is not the tradition we're from at all. Right. <laughs> we definitely um, see and understand ourselves. I think, you know, I would, at least for me, I'm guessing you would agree, as really uh, shepherding shepherding us and kind of figuring out, okay, what, where are we, where's the spirit leading us and how can we bring others along and do teaching around that, but also empower you to have the agency for your own spiritual relationship because I am not the arbiter of your relationship with God. That's why Protestants even exist, you know? So it's an interesting space to be in kind of when we, when we butt heads with that of what is, what is our job? What's our job on a Sunday morning? What's our job when we meet with you in a hospital? Uh, What's our role too as followers of Jesus? You know, just individually, because as people, we too are Christians in addition to having this particular role within a community, but we all have a role. Yeah. The the Genesis 2 text was um, kind of a spectacular mating text because it begins with uh, God being absolutely responsible, right? Mm -hmm. The the creator is doing this work in this second uh, the second creation story, this work is tactile. Mm-hmm. It's down in the dirt and mm-hmm. it's it's spitting into the dirt and making a little mud man and um, breathing life into that one. But that is where the passive relationship stops. And as soon as the little mud man is given breath, <laughs> um, there is responsibility. Mm-hmm. There is work to be done. Mm-hmm. That you came from the earth, and now it's your responsibility to continue to the growth of that earth, to till that, till that land, um, and that that again, that work, that spiritual work, is work that we often don't get to. Yeah, and and rely on others to do it for us. Um, or just don't get to it at all. You know, like yeah. there's just a lot going on. <laughs> Yeah, relying on others to do spiritual work for us simply doesn't work. It does not. Because it's, it, you cannot own it. Yeah. And I think, I think too, something I wanted to convey, um, at least here in this space, so we're, we're a theologically progressive church, 
Um, but we're not an activist church. We're a community, like we're a regional church. We're a community church. And a lot of what our community um, is missing is kind of these relationships built on curiosity and mutuality of realizing um, we're not, we're not going to be in lockstep with everyone we encounter. What is it? What does it mean such that other people don't get to decide for me how I perceive them? You know, like I can recognize like other people don't get to tell me if they're rude to me, like I choose how I respond and they don't get to dictate who I am. If other people have a particular bumper sticker, they don't get to dictate, you know, who God is calling me to be in the identity I live into. And so I think even a sense of agency, like we're so kind of on guard all the time to potential threat and attack after living through a lot, through a lot of um, kind of global trauma, some of us individual traumas. It just seems like a lot of us are kind of on guard a lot and we don't have the tools we need to just kind of breathe, let alone understand with the with a generous assumption almost everyone's doing the best they can with what they've got and we're coming at things from kind of different directions and i i don't say that in a sense of false unity or that we should ignore important justice and equity issues but also when two people are just gathered we have a lot more that connect us than our potential ideologies and we often don't get there because the conversation stays uh, either uh, it doesn't happen because we make because we stop with the assumptions, mm-hmm. or the conversation is uh, we let it stay shallow. You know where the question of where are you from stops dead on. You know I'm from Chicago or I'm from I'm some, from D.C. or I'm mm-hmm. from um, uh, a place out in the country you never heard of. It's the where are you from? Going a little bit deeper, even. Yeah, like where do you, where, yeah, where do you yeah. belong? Where do you belong? What's mm-hmm. what's important to you? What's mm-hmm. what's um, who who owns you as family? Yeah. Um, those those things seem evident in the scriptures, um, and yet we don't often take the time to go there. A lot of fear wrapped up in that. That if I if I go deeper, I will find that our differences are greater rather than lesser. Yeah. Yes. And um, othering is easy. It is attractive, (laughs) you know, like, and I don't ultimately think that's what Jesus calls us to. I don't see Jesus putting up with a lot of a a ton of bad behavior without letting it go unchecked in some capacity, you know, but he also was all the time eating with all the wrong people. All the people, you know, any camp would say, you should not eat with that other, with those others. He would be doing that. And and thoughtfully kind of with critiques of power, but ultimately through relationship, that was the vast majority of his ministry, was the relationship of teaching, of being present, of healing. You know, it's very personal. It is, and it's and it's it's hard, and we only have so much capacity for it, which is probably why Jesus ended up hanging around with twelve people. You know, at the end of the day, it was uh-huh. most most of his three years of ministry were focused on three people, because much more than that is exhausting. Yeah, um, we are finite. And, and hard yeah. To, yeah, hard to hard to hard to hold in gentle curiosity, because more than that, we start going to polarities because it's easier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's easier to do the rights and the wrongs, the ins and the outs, and and, uh, and not hold in curiosity. You know, I um, and I, I think a good point to that. I was talking, I was talking to someone yesterday about their response, and they're kind of telling me about a situation wherein, for a whole host of reasons, they they don't have the capacity to be curious, and Uh, perhaps they shouldn't. It might not be in their best interest to be curious about particular individuals. So then what do we do? And I was really thinking about it. And I think sometimes figuring out how to just be neutral or not to make those assumptions, you don't have to approach someone with curiosity all the time. You don't always have to meet like meaningfully engage, but to check your own self of like, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't have to feel this way about that. Like I can, I can trust that feeling and say, okay, thank you. and, And move along or figure out what that's doing within me such that you can minimally um, recognize another person, you know, as a child of God. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, the curiosity that, uh, that I think Christ calls us to is not the curiosity about the other, but about myself mm-hmm. in relationship to the other, about the assumptions I'm making about the other, about the biases, uh-huh. uh, about my fears of, of saying anything that yes. would, that would uh, involve the other. Yeah, because I mean, minimally, there need to be mutual curiosity, but you have no, you have no control over that. Right, you can only control your own curiosity. And that's kind of, and we see instances where that has not worked out, you know, in Jesus' favor. We see instances where Jesus says, you know, shake the dust, y'all. And, you know, that's just holding, holding gently and tenderly that like, just because someone isn't, isn't with you in a space or, you know, like that doesn't mean they have to be horrible or awful or like the worst human being, you know, like we don't always have to put people into these kinds of categories. We can just move on with life and, you know, wish them well and be about the ministry and the work we need to do. And I, I feel a sense of hypervigilance around people saying the right things, you know, posting the right things. There's a, there's a pretty big kind of watch watchdog community looking out for that right now. And I don't know how ultimately helpful it is. And I see a lot of our interactions with one another lacking nuance. Grace. Yeah, and grace, making generous assumptions about other people. We don't do that. Uh, we have we have moved far away from the generous assumption. Yeah, no, th- and, and social media has helped us to uh, assume that our work is to find inconsistencies in what people are saying or doing, mm-hmm. and to judge it mm-hmm. rather than rather than uh, generous grace. Uh, where we at least ask the question, you know, help me if you would understand, because I'm, I'm not getting, I'm not getting this. It's not reconciling for me, and it matters to me that it, that I understand. Yeah. Yep. Oof. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> and that was just the first Sunday. And that was just the first Sunday. Um, yeah, there are many little rabbit holes I wanted to go down. Having two scriptures is a lot. Yeah. What we know of me is that I like to put three sermons together in one anyway. So <laughs> there's a lot going on there. Um, I have a lot of generous grace around that. So, Oh, good. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> and it was, uh, it was interesting to reflect back on um, my time in DC and like how formative it was working within our daily bread, um, the ministry there. Mm-hmm. And how much, how much I learned and how much grace people had for me and my learning of, of presence. And yeah, it was a really kind of special and unique place that I would, um, yeah, that I would offer as a huge, huge learning in my life. Yeah, that struck me because I think um, when we go a little bit deeper in the questions of where are we from, we find that the formation happens. Um, uh, I was going to say the best, but I, but I think it happens in ways that are most obvious when we dare to step into something that is that is really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my own urban experience uh, that I was thinking about was doing. We had a we had a gym, and so we opened it up for. Um, for gangs, rival gangs, and it was safe space. And mm-hmm. it was, you know, you're no colors and no weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, same same kind of deal. Yeah. And did it always go well? Uh-uh. <laughs> uh-uh. Um, but the learning that goes with that, mm-hmm. not but and the learning that goes with that is really where I'm from. Yeah. I, I think those spaces that have that we have been nudged to enter that allow us to expand and grow are are tremendous. I remember my first few weeks there and I you know, I had just moved to DC from Illinois from literally living in cornfields and I'm in a city. I'm in a city that has a pretty large um uh, unhoused population. You know, people will flock to DC because generally their laws are they they uh, criminalize poverty less than most spaces around. And we had a lot of folks that were just priced out of the neighborhood, but they still wanted to live in their neighborhood, <laughs> so they lived there. And I remember, you know, leading one of my first Bible studies and and being kind of asked like, what you know, what does it mean pray for your enemies? Because I literally have people you know trying to come at me and and harm me in my sleep to steal my stuff. And I remember just being like, I am out of my depth. 
I don't know. I have never had an enemy in that sense. I have no, you know, and, and kind of figuring out how to talk through that and, and reflect back and the willingness to say like, yeah, that's a great question. And if you're literally asking me, like I'm, I'm from Sandwich, Illinois. <laughs> like I, I do not have an enemy in the same place in the same way. And it was a, yeah, that kind of really sparked and started a lot of this learning of, oh, okay, I need to, to you know, buckle up and dig in. Yeah, and it, and it is so, it's, it's lovely in that it begs the question for us, um, what is threatening? Mm-hmm. What is threatening to me? And we become threatened by the most insignificant stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not on the street having people waking us up in the middle of the night at, at knife point to take our stuff, uh, most of us. Mm-hmm. And um, so then we ask, what is threatening? And often we, you know, somebody's meme is threatening or somebody's bumper sticker or, or somebody's mere being is threatening. Yeah. Be, be well for us to take a hard look at that. Yeah, and I think the added hypervigilance, particularly coming out of pandemic, of really making us suspicious of one another, um, that that has not helped. You know, and I, again... I, th- I hope I communicated that well. I'm not criticizing it. We had to do it, okay. you know, and we're here now figuring out, oh, is every person I encounter a threat to my life? You know, like we were told potentially might happen. And I'd, I didn't process that or think about that at the time because it was like, I just need me and my babies to survive. But now it's like, okay, we might have some work to do around this and um, not have fully grappled with the reality of what that has done to us and how we interact with one another as a community. Well, that's a, a lot for folks to hold and uh, it's a probably pretty good segue to next week where we're doing, um, where does it hurt? I've uh, been meaning to ask, where does it hurt? And uh, there's plenty of hurt to go around right now and some of it's being carried over from pandemic and into whatever this is <laughs> some kind of new uh, version of that. So stand by for this week. And uh, that's, that's what I had. How about you? Yeah, no, um, I'm glad you're back. It's good to be in conversation again. It is. And um, I'm, I'm excited to hear you preach because, you know, I've had to preach a lot and I think, I think we're ready for another voice. <laughs> hey, you know, I, I've, I've got some stuff in the back pocket. So hopefully, hopefully I haven't forgotten. I don't think you have. We'll see you here next week.